Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. For this special episode, we have gone through our listener-submitted questions and picked out some favorites. You'll be able to hear them all here. Our first segment has a few favorite questions sent in by our diocesan priests, including Father Dennis Di Benedetto and Father Dave Vores. Our first question is from Father Eric Bergner, parochial vicar of St. Pius X Parish in Granger. He asks, what's your favorite food? <laughs> Father Eric, I can't believe that you would call in that question. Does By he know the, way, the answer already? Uh, well, I tease him about his diet, so I know <laughs> okay. that's why he's doing that. Um, Father Eric, I just ordained Father Eric for our listeners yeah. uh, and Father Dennis back in June. Two wonderful new young priests. And uh, I'd always get on Father Eric's case to make sure he was eating healthy and getting the proper <laughs> exercise. So that's funny that he asked what my favorite food is. But anyhow, I was just at a Tin Caps game in Fort Wayne, and I discovered uh, what <laughs> something that was really good that they told me is a big Indiana dish, which I've been here seven and a half years and I didn't know it, but yeah. veal tenderloin sandwiches. Okay. And it was really good. Yeah. But that's not my favorite food. I would say, <laughs> Father Eric, it would be a healthy Mediterranean diet, Italian <laughs> and Greek food. And I'm part Greek, so I love Greek food, Greek yeah. salads, Italian food, all kinds. Uh-huh. Olives? Olives I can eat. I used to, I I used to get scolded by my parents because they would open a can of olives and I'd eat the whole can. <laughs> yeah, I love olives, especially black olives. Yeah. <laughs> Do you cook? Uh, you could call it that. I usually heat things in my microwave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from Father Dennis Di Benedetto from St. Charles Parish here in Fort Wayne, he says, "Not wanting to be outdone by my beloved clashmate." Father Eric, I figured I should ask you a question too. While responding to his query about your favorite food, you mentioned you are part Greek. Which of your ancestors came over on the boat? Do you have any family members who are Greek Orthodox? And most importantly, do you think there's a reason to hope that in the future the Catholic and Orthodox churches will be reunited? Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Father Dennis. For our listeners, I ordained Father Eric and Father Dennis this past May. What a joyful experience that was. Two very fine young priests. And, um, and as Father Dennis mentioned, Father Eric had called in a question about my favorite food. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so a shout out to Father Eric and Father Dennis. And I know Father Dennis has a special interest in the Eastern Church and and the traditions and the spirituality. So, mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised by his question. Yes, my grandfather on my mother's side, my mother's father was an immigrant from Greece. As a matter of fact, his name was Kyriakos, which is translated into English as Carl, which is my middle name. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, my Greek relatives in Greece, call me Kyriakos. So how do you like that? Yeah. So anyhow, when my maternal grandfather came over, he came to where my roots are, a little town in the coal regions of Pennsylvania called Mahanoy City. And um, most of my ancestors who lived there on both my mother's and father's side were coal miners. 
it was a tough life, you mm -hmm. know. Many got lung disease, and uh, I think they called it black lung, and, yeah. and died young. It was a rough life, but they had strong faith. So my grandfather, when he came over, married an Irish Catholic woman, my grandmother, whose name was Sarah Boyle. So it was an Orthodox Catholic couple, okay. which back in those days wasn't very common, you know, um, mixed marriages. But they had a beautiful marriage. And uh, the children were raised Catholic, so my mother was raised Catholic. Now, my grandfather continued practicing the Greek Orthodox faith okay. until his death, but he loved the Catholic Church, too, hmm. uh, which was really neat. There was no Greek Orthodox Church in Mahanoy City. If On special feasts, he would go to the nearest one, which was in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. But he would accompany my grandmother to Mass. So anyhow, we always had a very, I'd say, great respect for the Orthodox, which, as you know, are very close to the Catholic Church in beliefs. The Orthodox have all seven sacraments. They have valid priests and bishops and, and really many beautiful things. Their liturgy is beautiful. And then we have those of the Eastern Church who are already reunited with the Catholic Church, the Eastern Catholic Churches, which are different from the Orthodox Churches, but very similar liturgy. Mm -hmm. So, to Father Dennis's questions, yes, I have family members who are Greek Orthodox, but they're all in Greece, mm -hmm. and they're basically cousins. I was the first one of my family to go back to Greece huh. since my grandfather left. And all I had was some photos and uh, an old address. And uh, when I went to that address, they didn't recognize the name. And they pointed me to a corner grocery store, and I went there, and they did recognize it. And they called on the phone. They're speaking Greek. <laughs> and sure enough, um, these people came, and it was my mom's first cousins. And boy, did they put on a feast for me. I'll never forget heaping piles of octopus and squid. <laughs> <laughs> How was it? Oh, I loved it. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was good. I didn't care so much for the Retsina wine that they served. Okay. But uh, <laughs> I liked the squid and the octopus. But it was wonderful. They, At first, you could see they were disappointed. They, they wondered why I was studying. I was a student in Rome. They wondered, why are you studying in Rome? You could see when they found out I was Catholic, oh. they were not real happy. But then you could, they, they said, oh, yeah, Kyriakos married an Irish Catholic woman. So then it was they okay. Remembered that. They remembered oh, Yeah, they remembered it. Huh. And, and uh, actually, they told me many stories about my grandfather. For example, the first cousins of my mom, and we never knew this, they were able to get a good education because my grandfather sent money back home to his sister in Greece, and they were very poor. But this money allowed them to get their children a, a good education. So anyhow, I love this part of my ancestry. And I know Father Dennis, he asked if there's reason to hope that in the future the Catholic and Orthodox churches will be reunited. Mm -hmm. I think there's always hope. There's been the international Catholic Orthodox dialogue, but it's difficult. We have so much in common. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we just have to keep plugging away, keep praying. Sometimes there, there are various things that are getting in the way. Some are political. The Orthodox churches themselves 
have a lot of disagreement among themselves. So there are some Orthodox who are more ecumenically minded than others. It's complicated. I could spend a whole segment on this, but, but I do have hope. I really do. Hi, Bishop. This is Father Dave Voors from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish. A question. If I hear of a prayer need during the day, in the middle of a meeting or with a group of people, or I'm just thinking of prayer intentions and would like my guardian angel or a favorite saint to join in intercession for that particular need, does my guardian angel hear my request by just asking it in my mind? Or do I have to express the prayer need out loud for angels or saints to hear? I thank you for your input. God bless. Thank you, Father Dave. I'll answer that pretty simply, but then get into it a little bit more. The short answer is yes. Your guardian angel hears your request by just asking it in your mind. Hmm. Um, now, what I would want to expand upon a little bit is, and this we find in Scripture and certainly in the early tradition of the church, that the saints do into, and the angels join their prayers with ours. We see that even at every Mass at, uh, in the preface before we sing the Holy, 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 the Sanctus, we're reminded that the angels and the saints and the angels and archangels, the whole company of heaven, sing with us. And really, the saints and the angels do know of our struggles on earth, and they know of our prayers. They will pray for us when we ask them to. It gets a little bit difficult to understand because we're dealing with the mysteries of heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, some of this is not clear to us yet because not everything about the mysteries of heaven have been revealed to us by God. So we have to think about it, and that's where theology comes in. But one of the things that I think helps us to understand is that when someone is in heaven, they see God. And we're not talking about physically, our physical eyes. We're talking about with our mind and our heart. Kind of, we could say, like the eyes of our soul in a really new and glorious way. We think about that beatitude Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we think about the angels and the saints. They're in this state in which they are able to contemplate God in his heavenly glory. And that, of course, is called the beatific vision. We can't even imagine it. It's an indescribable experience. But this is the destiny that God has for us. So we don't fully understand it until we get there. But we do know that um, we shall see God, know God as he is. Well, in doing so, when you think about the saints and the angels, if they see God as he is, they also are able to see everything that God loves. And one of the things God loves best is his creatures that are made in his own image and likeness, human beings. So the saints who see God also see and know about us on earth because they see us reflected in the mind and heart 
of the God who loves us, who they see face to face. So anyhow, I think it's beautiful. That, that question makes us think about it as a good way to think about the mystery of heaven. But again, I, that's why it's good for us to be conscious of our guardian angels and, and the saints and, and to turn to them, to realize that they're in that state of the beatific vision, that they, they know our prayers. Coming up, Bishop answers questions on the rosary and whether or not God changed Saul's name to Paul. If you would like to submit a question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We'd like to thank you for listening to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Uh, Just to let you know and to remind you that you can also listen to our other shows that are produced at Redeemer Radio, Dr. Doctor, which is our medical show, and also the Kyle Hyman Show, which is a daily morning show. These are available however you're listening to this So it's available on our FM stations as well as streaming online. And past episodes can always be found in the archives through the Redeemer Radio app at the Redeemer Radio website or wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. This is a special episode dedicated to some of our favorite listener-submitted questions. This segment starts out with a question asking about the rosary. If you could witness firsthand any of the mysteries of the rosary, which would it be? I would like to have been there at every single one of them. (laughs) Uh, But I can't think of anything more amazing than the resurrection of our Lord, Mm -hmm. the first of the glorious mysteries. Although, to be honest, no one saw the actual resurrection with their own eyes right they they did see the risen Christ afterwards but that would have been great to witness firsthand Oh, my goodness. You can think of Pentecost and Center of the Holy Spirit. You can think of the Last Supper and the Luminous Mysteries. You can think of the Annunciation, the Nativity of our Lord. I mean, all of those various mysteries of the Rosary. Uh, uh, or to be there at the foot of the cross. Oh, my goodness. At the Crucifixion, the fifth sorrowful mystery. I don't know. I'd, if I could be have been at any one of them, uh, it would be amazing. Do you have a favorite set of mysteries? You know what, Kyle? That's a good question. It changes. There are some times in my life where I'm really, you know, I might be more moved, for example, by the joyful mysteries. And maybe I go through a period where the sorrowful mysteries are touching me most deeply. Hmm. So, yeah, for me, it varies. I was really glad, though, with the luminous mysteries. I think there was that kind of you know, that public life of Jesus that was kind of missing. Yeah. So it was great when Pope John Paul established the luminous mysteries. I, you know, in a way that's kind of completed, I think, you know, now we have the four sets of mysteries that kind of makes it even more a compendium of the gospel, makes the rosary even more a compendium of the gospel now that we have the mysteries of light. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who might find their minds wandering during Mass. Oh, I have a few tips I would give on that. Okay. Um, you know, one of the most important things in my mind is to arrive early for Mass mm-hmm. because I think one's much more easily distracted if one's not focused. So if you arrive at Mass, let's say, 10 minutes before it begins, and you spend that time just kind of 
clearing your mind, focusing, you know, praying, then you're not just entering into it with everything that's distracting. I think that's a good tip. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, distractions will happen. And that's, I mean, we're human. So during mass, there are times where we can become, we find our mind wandering. Don't get upset when that happens. When you realize it's happening, just kind of remind yourself and be gentle with yourself to refocus and also to really participate in the mass, to say the prayers, to sing the the hymns. That helps. You know what I find? I know some people don't agree with this, but... I like having the missile. In other words, if you have a, da- a Sunday missile or a daily missile where you re- you can read along with the prayers and the readings, mm-hmm. some would disagree with me on that. They'll say, no, you should just be listening. You shouldn't be reading along. Yeah. But I think it depends on the person. I find that I absorb more if I'm reading along. Now, I'll probably get some people who say, Bishop, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but I'm just saying. Yeah. That's just my opinion. Mass isn't. You know, it's not an event for spectators. We should be entering into it. And I just find that when I read, I enter into something more, mm-hmm. you know. So so I think that can help some people. There is a, uh, I think it was maybe a month ago, Kyle, we were talking about St. Francis de Sales, weren't we? Right, yeah. You know, he talked about this. Okay. And this is a few centuries ago. He said, if the heart wanders or is distracted... Bring it back to the point quite gently and replace it tenderly in its master's presence. Hmm. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back and place it again in our Lord's presence, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. <laughs> That's a quote yeah. from uh, from Francis de Sales. I thought of another thing is uh, you can... Bring your intentions with you to Mass, Mm -hmm. your sacrifices. Um, I think that's very good. And um, and ask the Lord. I think another thing is to just say, especially if you get there early, Lord, help me to be attentive. Mm -hmm. You know, help me to to really listen during this Mass. Help me to adore you. We ask the Lord for for that grace. There's a beautiful prayer. I think a lot of our listeners probably know the prayer, the Anima Christi. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very beautiful prayer at communion time because sometimes I think, I remember when I was just a little child after receiving First Holy Communion, how we were taught when we come back from communion to take that time of silence and just really you know, close our eyes and pray and because we just received the Lord's body and blood. And I, I think that the prayer Anima Christi is a great prayer, you know, where you pray, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me. I mean, it's a beautiful prayer, and I, yeah. I recommend it to people if you've never prayed the Anima Christi. I think it's a beautiful prayer to say after receiving Holy Communion. From Jennifer Zerbaugh from St. Vincent's Parish in Fort Wayne. Why did God change Saul's name to Paul? Thanks, Jennifer. A lot of people ask that question. The answer is pretty simple. God did not change 
Saul's name to Paul. Oh. Um, it was sometime after Saul's conversion from Judaism to Christianity, the conversion on the road to Damascus, where um, in the scriptures we start seeing, not immediately, but eventually we start seeing Saul referred to as Paul. But if you notice, it really happens when he starts going out on mission, especially into the uh, Roman world, into the Gentile world. And there, the name Saul is Paul. That's the Latin name. Oh. The Latin name is Paul. So there was no change. Jesus did not change Saul's name to Paul. Uh -huh. It's basically just a different language. Saul's the, the Hebrew name, and uh, Paul's the Latin name. So it's not like when Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which right. you know signified the special role that Peter would have in the church. That did not have, there's no name change in the case of Paul. It's just a different language. So if a man named Joseph would go to Mexico and they say, what is your name? He might say, Jose. Jose. Right. He didn't really change his name, just right. they it, would understand that better. Exactly. Huh. Interesting. Stay tuned for more of our favorite listener submitted questions for Bishop Rhodes. You can submit yours at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We want to thank all those who support Redeemer Radio and support shows like this through donations financially, as well as donating time. We have so many great volunteers that help out around here at Redeemer Radio. If you would like to get involved and are able to support financially or with your time, please let us know. You can go to RedeemerRadio.com or you can stop by the station either in Fort Wayne or South Bend. We would love to have you as part of the team. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're highlighting some of our favorite listener-submitted questions this week. On this segment, find out more about the Sacrament of Reconciliation and whether or not Bishop played sports as a child. But first, it's annual reviews. Do bishops ever get an annual performance review? No, but I do get a lot of feedback. <laughs> uh, unofficial. 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 Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, some of my colleagues, I'll ask sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, their opinion of some aspects of my ministry. Um, but the only one that I really report to as my superior is the Pope, yep. you know. So, but uh, other than that, it's kind of informal. Okay. Another listener submitted the following. I went to confession for the first time in 15 years. It was really, really, really hard to work up the courage that first time, yet it has transformed my life. If someone hasn't gone to confession in many, many years, how can we encourage them to take the leap to receive the mercy and joy Jesus has waiting for them if they just ask? Well, you know, I would share your story with someone that you know. I would say, you know, the best way of evangelization is personal witness. Mm. And I think if you know someone who it's been many years since they went to confession and you want to encourage them, just share your experience. That tell the person, you know, I hadn't been to confession 15 years, but when I went, it really changed me. I received God's mercy and just filled me with joy. So if you bear witness, that that's an encouragement to someone else because you're personally sharing with them your story. 
Another thing that could be helpful to a person, they may be worried because they say, oh, I don't remember how to go. Mm -hmm. So you can also just help her say, oh, the priest is going to help you. But it's very simple. This is all you have to do. When you go in, you can say this and give the person a copy of the Act of Contrition, Act of Contrition so if they forgot it, they can pray it. So I think, you know, don't be afraid to invite people. We, need, we should really invite people to, to this sacrament of mercy. And again, share about how meaningful that has been in our own lives of faith. And I know from my own experience and from hearing from other people, if you ever forget a step or just completely don't know how to confession, go to confession, the priest is not going to be upset at all. No. He is so happy that you're there and is happy to guide you through those steps. Um, and maybe this is this answering the question is in a way responding to the question because she's asking how can we encourage those people and so if you're listening right now and you haven't been to confession in a long time uh, this is us encouraging you to go to confession and, and just take that leap and even if it is intimidating and scary uh, know that as this listener suggested there's a lot of joy in in going to confession and being absolved of those sins and you know what this season of advent i can't think of a better way to prepare for christmas we hope to have a Merry Christmas, a joyful Christmas. There's no greater joy than reconciliation mm -hmm. with our Lord, to return to Him with contrite hearts and to receive His gift of mercy. That's what's going to make it a, a truly happy Christmas for people. I know myself, I often try to come up with excuses to not go to confession. And one of them that I use often, and this isn't a good reason, but is I haven't done a good examination of conscience, which is something that we should do before we go to confession. Uh, any suggestions on how long you should prepare for confession? Is a, is a good preparation better than no preparation, or is going to confession better than not going because you haven't done preparation? Oh, no, I think there always should be preparation okay. because one needs to have, I mean, it doesn't have to be lengthy. But one needs a time to examine their conscience. Mm -hmm. It could be that one spends an hour preparing during the week, or it could be one just spends 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it'll depend on when was your last confession. Sure. You know, you have to think about how much time. But, but yeah, you want to seriously think about your life. And uh, I find it helpful to review the Ten Commandments and to think about each one a little bit. Think about my vocation, how faithful in my own vocation. I think those are things for everybody to do. Most of us, I think, who go to confession regularly, we kind of have it down. Like we know, and, and oftentimes yeah. we know what our particular weaknesses and struggles are that come to mind pretty quickly. And if you're looking for a confession times, it's usually in your church bulletin or you can stop by your church or set an appointment with your parish priest if it's been a while and you think it might take a little longer time or something like right. that. Did you play sports as a child? And if yes, what sports did you play? Yeah, I did, but I had difficulties. I had really bad asthma when I was growing up. So I did play Little League Baseball. I played basketball was always my favorite sport growing uh -huh. up. But I really struggled because sometimes I would, you know, St. Mary's School in Lebanon, I played basketball. But I couldn't play much because I would run down the court and have an asthma attack. I mean, I really had it bad. I had to be taken to the hospital a number of times. Thanks be to God, I grew out of it yeah. uh, by college. And then I was much more involved in intramural sports, both football and basketball and tennis. 
actually tennis in high school, intramural football and basketball in college. And I was able to do it because I, I kind of grew out of the asthma, Mo- mostly grew out. I'm still allergic to animals and things like that. But now I can run. It was hard. I couldn't run as a child very uh-huh. much because I had asthma so bad. Was the football that you were playing, was that full pads or was that flag football? No, flag football. <laughs> yeah. Although, no, I did play, not with pads. I've, I've played tackle, but without pads. <laughs> I also played in my first couple of parish assignments. I'd get together with some of the other young guy, young adult men in the parish when I was a young, young man. And we would get together and play football and yeah. basketball, more basketball, actually. Sure. Yeah. Stay tuned for more of our favorite listener-submitted questions for Truth in Charity, this time from the youth of our diocese. If you would like to submit a question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. If you're enjoying this episode, why not share it with a friend? You can just find the link for this show and share that on social media or tell somebody about it and invite other people to listen. A great way to share our faith is by sharing things that inspire us. So if this is helping you in your faith, we invite you to tell somebody about it. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're continuing our special episode highlighting some of our favorite listener-submitted questions. On the Feast of St. Nicholas, students from Fort Wayne's St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic School recorded a few questions for our bishop, and we'll play some of our favorites in just a moment. But first, three high school students who are part of the youth group at St. Pius X Parish in Granger stopped by the studio last summer with their questions. First up is Lauren. Until the Council of Trent in 1563, priests were not required to remain celibate. Do you think one day this rule could be changed back to the way that our society is changing, especially with the topics that we talked about with the ecumenical councils? Yeah, no, very good question. I think I would like to answer that by saying, actually, the discipline of mandatory celibacy, the rule forbidding priests to marry, really began in 1139 with the second lateran council wow so and then the council of trent reaffirmed that okay so it really goes back to 12th century but in addition to that going back to the year 304 there was a council in spain and there was also this discipline in other parts of the church where even though priests were allowed to marry before they were ordained. Once they got ordained, they had to live in continence with their wives, which means they could not engage in conjugal relations. Okay. So I, I, I mention that because I think a lot of people think that priests were living up until the Second Lateran Council married like any other where they're engaging in conjugal act having children etc well that's not really true because back in the fourth century already they were expected to live in in continence you know refraining from conjugal relations with their wives so it's actually more it's an older tradition than some people think of course the tradition goes back also to jesus who himself was celibate so anyhow that's just some historical things okay but i would say can the rule be changed yes we have married priests in um 
in the Eastern Catholic Churches, not in the Latin Catholic Church. The discipline is in the Latin Catholic Church, but Byzantine Catholics, Ukrainian Catholics, they allow married priests. We also have some Episcopalian priests or Lutheran ministers who've converted to Catholicism and they're already married. They've been allowed to continue to be married. So there have been some exceptions like that okay. to the rule. And it is a disciplinary rule. But we believe that celibacy has great value for various reasons. It allows one, a man to give himself with an undivided heart to the Lord. That's what St. Paul says. And it's an imitation of Christ and his celibacy. So we think it's a really, really good thing. I do not anticipate a change in the law of celibacy because it's been a law for the past, as I said, uh, a strict law since the Second Lateran Council. But even you know, going back to, to the fourth century, some would even say even it was there even earlier than that. So it is possible that it could be changed, but I think because of its value, I don't anticipate that change, but I'm not the Pope. He okay. would be the one who would, would make that. Now, I would say throughout tradition, this is really important, once a man was ordained a priest, he couldn't marry after that, ever. Oh, okay. So in other words, he'd have to get married before ordination. And that's the same with the Eastern Catholic Churches, even the Orthodox Church today, hmm. which allow married priests but they have to be married prior to ordination. I once did a visit to an Orthodox seminary and I met some guys and they were finishing their studies. And I said, oh, when's your ordination? And they said, Bishop, I don't know yet because I want to get married and I can't get ordained and then get married afterwards. So I'm gonna have to delay <laughs> ordination till huh. I find the right woman. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for that question, Lauren. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. All right, and Alyssa. Okay, so I'm curious, uh, how and when did you discern your vocation? Well, I think the f idea first came to me when I was in seventh grade when I was confirmed. That was the beginning. But I only really discerned it when I was a sophomore in college. I was at Mount St. Mary's College in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and I was really struggling about whether to get married or was God calling me to be a priest, which was God's will for me. And I remember very distinctly in October, of my sophomore year of college, I went up the mountain where the college was, it was Mount St. Mary's, it's on a mountain, and there's a beautiful grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes, and I was just praying there real hard, you know, asking Our Lady to, to intercede, and I felt this, like, how do I describe it, like I was flooded with this sense of joy and peace with the idea of serving God as a priest. So I saw that as a key moment because it was right after that that I went to the vocation director and began the process. So I would have been 19 years old, a sophomore in college at that time. Yep. Yeah. So thanks. Thank you. All right, Jeff, do you have another question? What can I say to people who have a hard time believing in God because they see so much suffering in the world? Jeff, you just asked me the most difficult question of people. It gets to what we call the problem or mystery of evil. We could talk about this a long time. It's really probably the most serious question or problem, objection to the existence of God. 
There are people who've abandoned the faith because of, of suffering, and they, they just can't accept that there's a good God who allows it. But I think there is a Christian answer to this question, to this problem. First of all, we know that everything God created is good, that it's not His will that we have pain and suffering. Suffering entered the world because of human sin. But the thing where you see the struggle with human suffering throughout the scriptures, the book of Job is, pro you know, all those bad things that happened to Job and how he struggled with the mystery of evil, with the suffering in his life. That shows that this has been a perennial question. So again, the cause of suffering ultimately was original sin. But anyhow, what happens when it's in our life, a serious illness or someone that we love dies or we, what's even most difficult, the most difficult experience in our life can see some, when we see someone that we love in a lot of pain or suffering. I think the solution to this problem is God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Father's love for us is so great that he sent his son to embrace our human suffering, to suffer for us, and to suffer with us. So his passion, his crucifixion, and what was the result of that? He defeated the power of evil by the power of love. So this is part of God's solution to the problem of evil. It's the cross of Jesus. And so when we suffer, the important thing is to unite our sufferings to the sufferings of Jesus, to take up the cross with him. And then our suffering doesn't, doesn't seem useless. It has meaning. It has purpose. There are times where I've seen where suffering can bring about even good in the life of a person. Suffering can bring people closer to God. They turn to God more, maybe repenting of past sins. But then there are others who, when they experience suffering, they rebel against God. They turn away. I always think of those words of St. Paul to the Romans, that all things work together for good for those who love God. And I think that includes suffering. Suffering can work for good to those who love God. And again, we see that in Jesus. Think of the good that resulted from his suffering, our redemption, eternal life. So it still remains a mystery, you know. Mm -hmm. When someone asks me if I visit a sick person who's having a lot of struggle, they'll ask the question, why? Why is God allowing this to happen? Well, first of all, God isn't causing it, but why does God allow it? It's a mystery we'll only know after this life, really. But I do trust that it's for our ultimate good, as long as we open ourselves to God's grace in our suffering. So, Jeff, I hope that's somewhat helpful. It is. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Pete Allen, and my grade is third grade. And my questions are that, is it nervous to be in front of all that people? And, like, do you remember everything you say? Oh, thank you, Pete. You know what? I don't get nervous in front of all the people. When I was in high school, I would get nervous sometimes in public speaking. But I think by the time I got to college and, 
and all that, I kind of overcame that nervousness. So now I'm not nervous at all in front of all, a lot of people. But you know, Pete, also you asked if I remember everything I say, like uh, at, in homilies and stuff. No, I remember, <laughs> I think sometimes I forget, but um, you know, but I remember some. Yeah, I usually remember the important points. Do you usually memorize your homilies or do you write them ahead of time and read them or kind of deliver some off the cuff? Or It depends. Okay. Uh, sometimes I have a written text. But when I do have a written text, I'm not like bound to it. You know, uh -huh. I have it in front of me. It kind of gives me some extra confidence so I don't get off track. Other times I don't use a text at all. Or sometimes I'll just have a key, few key talking points like an outline. It often depends on the congregation and the type of mass it is. Like let's say I'm doing a big chrism mass or something. I'll have a text, you yeah. know, I want that to be, you know. But other times if I'm having masses at some of our schools and that, I know w well what I want to say, but I don't have a written text. Do you get nervous if you're addressing the bishops at a USCCB conference? Pro you know, that's good. I probably would, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think a little nervous. The hardest group to preach to are your peers. Right. I, I mean, even from early on, you know, when I had to give a talk or, or preach, to, to priests, that would probably bring a little anxiety. And I think I'd have some of that too, a little bit when I get up and to my brother bishops, yeah. Hi, I, I am Michael McCarthy and I am in first grade. And my first question is, why did they kill Jesus? Oh, that's a very good question, Michael. There were really two reasons. The religious leaders at the time didn't like Jesus. They didn't believe that he was the Son of God. And so they were very angry at him. And they accused him of a sin that we call blasphemy because Jesus was claiming equality with God. But of course, Jesus is God. So that was one reason. So they wanted him killed. But they also didn't have the power to put him to death. They had to go to the Roman authorities, to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate washed his hands and said, and condemned Jesus to death, not really for religious reasons, but more for political reasons. He said that, that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so those were the two main reasons that they killed Jesus. They, uh, they hated him, and yet Jesus loved them. And uh, so that's the reason. Thanks, Michael. Michael also has a follow-up question to that. My second question is, why does Jesus forgive our sins? Uh, you know why? Because he loves us so much. When we're sorry for our sins, he always forgives us, and, and really, Mercy and forgiveness, that's part of love. You know, Michael, if someone hurts you and then they're sorry and you love that person, so you forgive them. And that's the same thing. Jesus loves us and forgives us. My name is Jade Boltmeyer and I'm in fourth grade. And my question is, what is your favorite flavor of gum? I don't think anyone ever asked me that question, Jade. <laughs> Let me think about it. Probably spearmint gum, 
because I remember that would be my favorite gum when I was a child, hmm. and it probably still is. I don't chew gum a lot. Um, be sure to brush your teeth all the time, Jade and children, because, you know, I've had a lot of, I have so many fillings, I don't, you should see. You got, and, and, uh, but now they have sugarless gum. So mm, if you okay. chew gum, chew sugar, sugarless gum. All right. From Frank Hyman from St. Mary's in Decatur, my six year old son, who said, Does Bishop know any jokes? Hey. <laughs> Okay, Frank, I hope you're listening. I have a few jokes for you. Okay. Okay? How do all the oceans say hello to each other? I don't know. They wave. <laughs> okay, Frank, here's another one. What did one wall say to the other wall? I'll meet you at the corner. <laughs> I think these are good for a six-year-old. Yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll oh, stop. here's another one I thought of. What do you call a bear... With no teeth. A gummy bear. <laughs> Should I keep going? <laughs> sure. Okay, Frank. What do you call a pig that knows karate? A pork chop. <laughs> oh, what animal needs to wear a wig? <laughs> I don't know. A bald eagle. <laughs> <laughs> i know these are corny uh, i'm Frank, crying though. i'm trying to think i'm not good at thinking oh i got one another one why do french people like to eat snails they can't stand fast food <laughs> oh here's another one what did the envelope say to the stamp stick with me and we'll go places <laughs> All right. Okay. One last one. <laughs> Why can't your nose be 12 inches long? Because then it would be a foot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Frank. Hope you enjoyed them. Take those to school, Frank. Join us next Wednesday at noon for an all-new episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Hear more about confirmation season, the special feast days we will soon be celebrating, and we'll debut a new game with Bishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.